<laughs> when he entered Cap- Capernaum, 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 a centurion came to him, pleading with him. Lord, my young servant lies in bed, paralyzed and in terrible pain. I don't know where we're going. That's clockwise. Yeah, clockwise. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the officer said, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. I know this because I am under authority of my own superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go, and they go, or come, and they come. And if, <clears throat> and if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to those who were following him, he said, I tell you the truth, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The many Israelites, those for whom the kingdom was prepared, will be thrown into outer darkness, where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to... To ring. Go, it will be done just as you believe it will be. And his servant was healed that very hour. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother in law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. What verse was that? That was... 15. You're on 16. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with the word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken to the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and bore our disease. And just a reminder, so last uh, time we gathered, we talked about the leper that came to Jesus and understood that he was breaking, breaking a lot of social customs by purely, one, going into a public crowd. Because when you had a leprosy or any sort of skin disease, by Mosaic law, you were untouchable. Literally meaning that anything that you touched, you had to declare that it was unclean because if somebody came behind you and touched it, they would be unclean. So anybody who was excluded by Mosaic law as untouchable or unclean lived in exile of community. So this leper, he comes to Jesus and he goes, will you heal me? And Jesus does something extraordinary. He touches the man and and he's healed. And so we talked about how as people and as a church, we want to gather and we want to have the faith of a leper. We want to ask and believe for things that we might have known to always be impossible. The leper most likely had leprosy or some sort of skin disease for the majority of his life. So for the majority of his life, he was always told, you will always be unclean. You will always be excluded. And yet he still went and he still asked and he still believed and he was healed. And so the healing of the leper and then today when we talk about the healing of the uh, the centurion slave and the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, these three sets of healing are unique and it is all a part of Jesus's journey back to Peter's house from the synagogue 
And so we're going to, I broke this scripture into three chunks, like these section of scripture into three chunks. And I'll be honest, today is what I like to call a classic crap show for me. Literally woke up and I, and did work and I was like, I'm going to work on my sermon. And then uh, I opened up Word on my laptop and I was like, oh my gosh, all of my, all of my sermon notes are gone. And then I died a little bit and then I still had to get stuff done. And so today I got home, changed, and then went to Woods and I was like, I will never write sermons in Word again. I will do it on Google Doc. And then I opened up Google Doc and lo and behold, there were my sermon notes. (laughs) So the entire day I was like, I lost my sermon notes. This is terrible. I'll never use Word. And then they were there. But for the most part, my day has been generally, um, if this were, my life was an emoji or my day was an emoji, it'd be the crap one. Crap but at least the crap was smiling. Crap oh, that's from track, BT dubs. That was a good one. <laughs> oh, sorry. Good one. Okay, so we're going to do the first chunk of scripture, which is Matthew 5 through 9. And so it's... So you see that, like we're setting it up, it says, When Jesus returned to Capernaum, a Roman officer came and pleaded with him, Lord, my young servant lies in bed paralyzed and is in terrible pain. Jesus says, I will come and heal him. And what makes this situation so incredibly unique is that Jesus just left the synagogue, and then he he's, he's at, at this point traveling to his destination. And a Roman officer, so a centurion was essentially considered the backbone of the Roman army because they would command the smaller groups of people. And most likely, the um, if not all, they were all Gentile. And so in Scripture, when you read between the Jewish people and the Gentile, Jewish, Israel, they were all the chosen nation by heritage, by blood, by what they believed. Like that, that is what God has set them apart to be. Gentile everybody else so if you're ever like who's a gentile anyone who isn't jewish and so this gentile comes to jesus and he goes i a a slave is sick we just transitioned from when the leper said i am sick i am diseased i am broken and i need healing so the leper was asking for himself and now we see the centurion asking for someone else but what makes this situation so incredibly unique is that the, the centurion wasn't asking for his daughter, wasn't asking for his wife. It wasn't, he wasn't asking for a family member. He was asking for a slave. And that is unique because in the Roman Empire, slaves were essentially viewed as animate tools. A hammer would be an inanimate tool. A slave is an animate one. That they were considered property. They were not people. They did not belong to your home. You, you own them. And every, the life and death of a slave, the owner got to, got to decide what would be justice. If an owner beat their slave to death, there is no repercussions for the owner. That is a belonging. If the slave either um, was sick, they would let them die. They were just a thing. And so you have the centurion come to Jesus and ask for healing for someone else. But he asked for healing from someone who culture said didn't matter. That if they were sick, they should have died. I mean, if a Gentile was to interrupt somebody that he didn't have relationship with and asked on behalf of someone else, that kind of got my wheels turning because it's so unique that people would ask for healing and miracle and deliverance for somebody who was not like them, for somebody that they didn't have relationship with. 
And I want to note that in the New Testament, all centurions were actually spoken about very highly. That they were always told in a really great light. And this is an example of that. Is that Jesus was on the way to Capernaum. He was on the way to Peter's house because Jesus didn't have a home. So in his ministry, he was traveling and staying with people. He was on his way to rest. And he encounters this person. And in his way to his destination, he still chose to stop and said to the Roman officer, I will come and heal him. But what makes even the centurion's response, like it wasn't unique how he was done. He's like, no, no, you don't have to come to my house. He didn't invite Jesus to his house because it was against law. It was looked at inappropriately if a Jewish person would go to a Gentile's home. And so first the centurion asked for the healing of somebody that was viewed at that time as an object. And then he said, you don't have to come to my house because your word is enough. That if you say he is healed, he will be healed. And there's this incredible moment between Jesus and the centurion. Because he says that I have never seen anybody in all of Israel that had faith like this. And so before we even go to that section, I kind of want to stop. And I kind of just want to share what has really stuck out for me when it comes to just Jesus going on his way and in having this encounter and I was really challenged by this so I want to ask us as how we teach here like how do we view interruptions in our everyday life like what is our gut reaction when we're on our way to go do something we have a destination we have we are at point a and we're trying to get to point b and something interrupts us upon like upon that path what is the first thing you feel when that happens (laughs) <laughs> Jenna's like, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, Jenna, what do you feel? Not great. <laughs> Generally pretty uh, frustrated. Anybody else want to share? I appreciate because you're the frustrated. <laughs> Annoyed. Yeah. Annoyed. Depends what kind of interruption it is. Yeah. yeah. Just good interruption, sure. Yep. Sure. I'm not super generally annoyed by interruptions. But... That's why we're a great team. <laughs> because I am. <laughs> How about you, Elizabeth? Um, depending on what it is, either annoyed or um excited. Yeah. Or happy that I'm home alone. I got there safely. <laughs> Whatever works for you. It's like, wait. I think what is really interesting. And like, I would love to hear your feedback, but I feel that we live in a culture where we're very driven to get from A to B. We're very driven by end goals. And when anything interrupts our end goal, they're interrupting our progress. And so we put a lot of stock in that destination that we're going to. And like, this is the corniest thing in the world, but it's like, but what about the journey? And like, this preaches to me because I'm very end goal driven. Like if I'm trying to get somewhere, the best thing is just to stay out of the way. And so this was really convicting to me because Jesus went from the synagogue, of a place of worship, and he was going to a place of rest. These are two very spiritual things. And then this Gentile stops him and says, I need you to heal my servant. 
It was not like, hey, Jesus, super important person. I need you to go heal a king. Or I need you to go heal someone with influence. I need you to go heal somebody who commands thousands. He's saying, I need you to go heal a slave. Because my slave is sick. And purely based on your word, he will be healed. And I, I begin to think, not just why he didn't want Jesus there, but if he was a Gentile, how was he exposed to who Jesus is? How would he know that Jesus was somebody who could do this? And so I kind of settled on the centurion was a man of authority and authority recognizes authority. That when you are in a position of authority in like inner like relationship dynamics, if somebody enters into a space where you have authority, you sense that authority in a person. You can see these things in a person. And so the centurion is a man of authority and he saw the authority that Jesus had. But what makes this really interesting to me is that I started to think about what, what does authority mean to us? And I began to think about as a pastor, my authority to speak into someone's life should never be because I'm a pastor. Your authority to speak into someone's life shouldn't be whatever title you might have. But our authority to speak into the lives of people is because we showed up and we loved well. Our authority to change culture should not be because we are the church. Honestly, we've done a really crappy job. Because we haven't shown up and we haven't loved well. And then we wonder why the church is not fulfilling what the church should be. That the collective body and believers of Christ are not steering the course of culture. We're playing catch up. And then I honestly believe it's because we haven't shown up when things got hard. And we haven't loved people well, especially people who don't believe the same things that we believe. And I had this really interaction, really great interaction with my friend where she said, I haven't gone to church in a while because I'm really wrestling with some faith stuff. And I immediately thought, shouldn't the church be where you go? We go if we don't believe and we might be wondering if Jesus is real. Shouldn't it be the collective body of believers that should say, come here and wrestle here. Come here and doubt here because your doubt and your wrestling and your questions do not cause fear in us. But it reminds us of the humanity and the realness of faith. Because there are a lot of things in Christianity that we take by faith that we do not have the, we can't even, we can't even prove by science. There are things that we can, but there are a lot of things that we take by faith and it shouldn't be the faith community where people wrestle with that question. So our authority, I believe without a doubt in our neighborhood, in our workplace, in every place we go, we will be given authority to speak life and truth by consistently showing up and by consistently loving well. It takes about seven to eight years for a missionary in a foreign country to actually gain any traction of influence. So for seven or eight years, missionaries are quietly loving and serving people around them and being invited into a space to speak life and truth. And I think that we should be the people who love so well and show up so consistently 
that people will say, I want your feedback on this. I want to hear what you have to say about this. I want to hear your authority, your position of authority on this. And it will never be because of our title. It can never be because we have any power. It should be because we simply showed up and loved well. And that is people seeing Christ in us. Because if anybody showed up and loved well, it was Jesus. And I think sometimes it is easy as the collective gathering of believers that we make church a lot of, about a lot of other things and not about Jesus and not about him in us and inviting people into a space where we can at least be real to say, I literally don't have my crap together, but we can do this together because this is not about perfection. This is about journeying. This is about falling and getting up. This is about having really great times and really crappy times, but we're in this together because I showed up and I'm going to love you well. So the centurion sensed this authority and purely based on that authority, he was going to believe that when Jesus said that the slave would be healed, that the slave would be healed. And then I said, when Jesus heard this, and we go into Matthew 10 through 13, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to those who were following him, he said, I tell you the truth, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. And I tell you this, that many Gentiles will come from all over the world, from east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, Isaac and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. But many Israelites, those whom the kingdom was prepared, will be thrown into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the Roman officer, Go back home, because you believed it has happened. And the young servant was healed that same hour. Why would Jesus be amazed by the centurion's response to his authority? And I open up. Because the people who were supposed to be amazed, the people who should have known who Jesus was, didn't recognize his authority. And he was an outsider, he was a Gentile, and he shouldn't have been a part of the people who were amazed, but he he was. So he almost kind of overcame this obstacle of ignorance. Yeah. Whereas these other people who were in positions of knowledge and yeah. studying um, uh, scripture all the time didn't recognize Jesus. So I think that part of the the amazement is like the contrast between the centurion and the people who were in power at that time. Spot on. The Gentile got something that the very people who should have known that something didn't catch. But they didn't catch and they didn't catch on to who Jesus was because Jesus did not fulfill their messianic expectation of a savior. Historical context, the Jewish people at that point were scattered and they waited and waited because they believed that their Messiah would ride in like a king like David, have wisdom like Solomon, have resources like the kings, and that their Savior would come in, ride in, and conquer every empire that has overcome them. So at this point, it would be the Roman Empire. So when Jesus comes in, born of a virgin, from a t small town out of nowhere, even though he fulfilled the prophecy that they knew was prophecy of the Messiah, 
They could not wrap their mind around the fact that the one who would save them was not a warrior in the way that they thought a warrior should be. He was not a king in the way that they thought a king should be. He was not the Lord that they thought he would be. So they had all these expectations of who God was. And they missed the very being and embodiment of fully God, fully man in Jesus. But this Gentile, exactly like Ben said, the Gentile got it. And I want us like in this chunk of scripture is when Jesus says, I have never seen any faith like this in all of Israel. That's like throwing mad shade at the entire nation. <laughs> because he's saying this Gentile, this unchosen person finally gets it. And you guys have missed it the entire time. I didn't even have to go and heal the man purely believed in my authority, which I've been showing to you consistently, but you keep saying I'm not it. And then in the following scriptures, he goes, from the east and from the west, from all over the world, the Gentiles will gather and they will participate in the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this feast that he was imagining was what every Jewish thought would be the kingdom of God, that would be heaven. That there would be this massive banquet that the Jews would participate in. And they were Jewish, so they were clearly chosen, and they would definitely go to heaven. And Jesus is like, here's the thing. Anybody who sees what this man has seen, that has believed in the authority that I have, who knows who I am and accepted who I am, they would be at this feast. So he was not just throwing shade to all the Jews by saying a Gentile had greater faith than all Anybody that he's encountered. And by this time in his ministry, he's encountered many religious people. He's also saying the Gentiles will come from everywhere. And they will have a spot at the table. They will be a part of the feast. And then he says, these Jews think that they're going to get in because they're Jewish. But they will be thrown into darkness where there is gnashing and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Which is in context with they would essentially, the darkness, Sheol, death, anywhere where God isn't that place of uh, like total separation. So shade to the entire nation, shade to what they thought, and shade to what they believed was their birthright. He's saying, no, this is it. So Jesus in this moment is directly attacking the idea of Jewish exclusivity. That because I'm Jewish, I get to go regardless because I'm chosen. And the Jewish people were the religious people of the day. And so I began to think, first thing, if the Jews were the religious people of the day, then who would be the religious people of today? Hint. It's us. Like that's just not a hint, that's just the answer. If the, the Jews were religious people of that day, we are the religious people of today. And I began to think how often we can miss the point and miss God completely because we have this expectation of who God should be and we miss the fact that he's showing up. We forget that this is not a birthright. 
Heaven is not a birthright. It is an incredible gift that we can choose to accept or not. And one of the hardest things, like clearly by now you know that Riley and I have children. Surprise! It's the Wajian ones here. Yeah, yeah. Right, surprise. We have a backyard. We also have children. But one of the hardest things about being a parent is knowing that we can't choose our children's faith for them. That at one point in their life, they will have to decide if this is what they want. But they don't get to say, my mom was a pastor, therefore I've got a one-way pass. No. We will love them well. We will show up for them. But it will be their decision on whether or not they will accept Jesus as their own Lord and Savior. But I just began to think all the things that we, as religious people, because we are people of religion, we are people of faith, what do we miss? How often do we miss God in all the things because we had an idea of what God should be and not truly encountering who he is in our everyday life? Like I had this moment, uh, perfectly honest, life has been waves on waves of suck for our family. My stepdad died when I was in the trip to Orlando. His memorials this weekend were actually leaving tomorrow. And in context, if you didn't know, I don't have a relationship with my stepdad. I don't have a relationship with my mom because I confronted my mom on years of abuse and neglect and she was not having it. But this weekend, I will see my brother who I haven't seen or spoken to in four years. And my brother abused me growing up and he sexually molested me. So I have to see this person that has hurt me deeply. So preparing for it, preparing to enter into that space, preparing to confront brokenness and sin and abuse. And then we find out this past Monday that Riley will have to have surgery on his foot, which will put him out of work for at least two months, which greatly changes this destination that we had and this planning that we had for our family. And I read this prayer book and essentially the guy said, I was going on a prayer walk and in the first part of the prayer walk, I was thinking about everything I should be doing. In the second part of the prayer walk, I was thinking about everything I should have done. And in the last leg of the prayer walk, I was thinking everything I will do. And then before he knew it, the prayer walk was over and he recognized this moment with God that we are so busy inviting God into this space of our lives, these spaces of waves for us right now is literally waves of suck. And we're so busy saying, God, I invite you into this space. And maybe we have failed to see that God is like, I've been in this space the entire time and I'm actually just waiting for you to stop inviting me into a place that I already am and just talk to me and listen to me while you're in this space. And I realized in that moment that we were so busy inviting God into the grief of what has happened with my family, inviting God into this this idea that I am preaching on healing and I have seen miraculous healing and I have seen people healed and I have had healing in my own life, but God has not yet healed my husband. And I'm teaching our church to have faith like the leper to ask for healing. And I'm over here. I'm like, why the, honestly, why the F haven't you healed my husband? If I have faith for all these things, why not me? So on waves and waves of suck, 
We have been so distracted. So instead of inviting God into this space, we have had moments where we just sit with God in this space. And we have to trust God in this space. We have to trust him that by his word and what he says and what is in scripture, that that is true. And so you have God, Jesus saying to these people that you might have missed the point. But this guy who doesn't technically you think belong to the kingdom, he got the point. So he's just throwing mad shade the entire time on his way to a resting space. From worship to rest, he has this exchange. And he calls an entire nation out on the fact that they have missed the point. That he is this messianic hope. He is the fulfillment of the prophecy. But they have missed it because they believed that their birthright was the kingdom of heaven. And they've missed this gift. And after he says all these things, I begin to think to myself in my own life, in the spaces that we have. If Jesus is saying to everybody who was around him, there will be room for the Gentiles from east to west, from all around the world at this feast with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with the fathers of the faith. I asked myself, do I make room at my table for every person? And that is a question I want to challenge you with. Are we making space at the table, at the meal, at the spaces in our life? And it doesn't have to be an actual meal, but it could be stopping for that interruption. It could be kindness when you see someone struggling and you ask, how can I love you well right now? But I promise you that this doesn't matter. And by saying this, this gathering, it doesn't matter if we just hold it here. Because it's like having the best unlimited thing in the world and then we just hoard it here. But we have to take this, this sense of belonging, this sense of having a place, this sense of having a spot at the table, this sense of having contribution to something greater. We could, trust me, it will be 100% easier if we just took care of the food every week. But the purpose of our shared meal is to communicate that each of us has a unique gift to bring to the kingdom of God. And when we bring our gifts and our talent and participate in the kingdom of God, other people benefit from it. If you have a gift of exhortation and you bring that to the kingdom of God and you bring that into the world, people will be blessed. Because Lindsay has the gift of administration, she has blessed me greatly. Twee, the reason there's a gift is because Lindsay thought of it. And I was like, yes! Jess. Her gift of just her thoughtfulness. She contributed that gift because trust me, if it was me, there would be no flowers. Sorry, I love you. I'd be like, do you want my plant? Please say no because that's Pikachu. (laughs) 
But when we bring our gifts to this greater experience, when you bring fruit, veggies, canned drink, meat, bless you, when you bring those things to the table and you see the children line up and eat and you see families go up and eat and everyone's grabbing all these things off the table, that is symbolic of the fact that each of us has brought something to the table and each of us gets to partake and watch people experience what is on that table. And that is what Jesus is saying and that is what we should all be challenged to do. But I say this, that not everyone is an extrovert who wants like all the peoples. But God might just be calling you to love your two neighbors really, really well. And show up for them really, really well. And that influence and that impact on those two will yield kingdom greatness. Just like the extrovert who might invite 20. Because at the end of the day, you are responsible for your table. And that space that you are inviting people into. And I am, I am responsible and we are responsible for each of us. So Jesus has his experience with this centurion, the backbone of the Roman army. And he calls out an entire nation. And then he continues on his way. Like when people make Jesus sound really fluffy and like hippie-ish, I'm like, nah, Jesus was hardcore. He was calling out people left and right. He's like, I'm going to go into the synagogue, throw over some tables because I'm real mad at what you guys did here. Like there's an ownership of his father's house. Which reminds me of this one time we did a, um, a quick shoot film here. And Kyrie, as a seven-year-old, has deep ownership of this home. Somebody was moving stuff around and she stood there and she goes, I hope you know where to put everything back. Because I don't think my mom would be happy if you didn't. <laughs> And then she walks away. And I just think, this is her home. This is her space. There's ownership here. Every time believers gather, there should be an ownership of that atmosphere and that space. Where we know what it is like to cultivate and exist and abide and align in the very presence of God. Jesus straight up goes into a synagogue, throws some tables over because he's real mad. So when we paint him as a hippie and we paint him as a doormat, we are missing all these other key parts. He just healed somebody and he didn't even have to go and touch them. He calls out a nation. And then I love it because it says, and then he arrived at his friend Peter's house. So it says, when Jesus arrived at Peter's house, Peter's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. And when Jesus touched her hand, the fever left her. Then she got up and prepared a meal. I have a lot of thoughts on that. <laughs> that evening, many demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. He cast out the evil spirits with a simple command. He healed all the sick. This fulfilled the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, who said, He took our sickness and removed our diseases. I thought, if these are three unique healings and three unique healing stories, what makes Peter's mother-in-law unique? It was really funny because when I was standing, it says, this healing is unique because she's a woman. And I was like, I don't get it. But this healing is unique because the leper asked and he was touched and he was healed. The centurion asked for somebody else. And by word, he was healed. In this scenario, it is not recorded if Peter asked. 
for the healing. Jesus did it. There was no exchange other than Jesus arrived at Peter's house in Capernaum, his destination, his final place of destination, his place of rest. Peter's mother-in-law was sick. He touched her. She got better. And then she went and prepared a meal. And why I said I had thoughts about this, every time I read this, like, the feminist part of me was like, so she immediately goes and makes food and feeds other people. Like, homegirl just got better. And I get real upset about it, and then I realize I'm still working on a lot of, like, myself. But this is so, she didn't ask. Peter didn't ask. It wasn't recorded. Jesus just did it because he could, and he did. And sometimes I think we make faith super, super complicated and helping people super, super complicated. And I had this experience, and, like, this is something I'm still working out. But, like, in Bellingham, there's an outrageous amount, like, there's a crazy amount of homeless people. And I think sometimes I, and I'm speaking for myself, I make loving them very complicated. Because I think, well, what are they going to do with the money that they just asked me for? Are they going to go do drugs? Are they going to go in an alley and shoot up? I don't know. Therefore, I will not help them, but I will pray for you. And that is Christian code for I just want this conversation to end and maybe I will pray for you later. But lately, I've been convicted because when I encounter a homeless person, I'm usually on the way to something else. I'm usually in transit. And then I think... If I give you $2, well, what have I spent that $2 on? Coffee. Something for myself. Candy. Whatever it is. I'm not responsible for what you do, but I'm responsible that if I feel prompted in that moment to give you a dollar or two, I will. If I feel prompted in that moment to give you my leftovers, I will. Because I will never be without but you are constantly without and therefore I whether or not you know I'm a believer I have the means to help you therefore right now in this moment how could I and then I walk away Jesus goes into a home he heals her there's no crowd there's no attention there is no awe there's not this big crazy moment there wasn't even an ask he just did it and I think to myself how many places have I gone and how many interruptions have I had where I couldn't take a moment to be in that moment because I was on my way to something else yes Rebecca that we've made that after we got it from the store and we make them for the homeless. I love we that. No, know that they're going to use them. Mm. And we don't give them money. We give them stuff that they may need. That is such on. a good idea. You know what? I think we should do that this Christmas. What do you think? Will you help me plan that? Mm-hmm. Okay, because I'm a terrible planner. <laughs> that was her idea. You will need to come up with the list. <laughs> we are going to teach you how to coordinate a nonprofit event mm-hmm. for us. So begin to work on it. 
I'll need to see your presentation in a couple weeks, okay? Don't use PowerPoint, use Proclaim. I'm going to have to apply for a 501. You'll definitely will. I am probably going to use Word. <laughs> no, because it doesn't save it. I feel like you're hitting a trigger point for me, Rebecca. No, it does. I save it on my flash drive all the time, and it's always there. Flash drive. You are not old enough to know about the cloud. No. I have a flash drive on my own. Oh wow. All right, girl. <laughs> it's a it's a pocket cloud. Need come back from that. <laughs> but if we hit on the fact that the then Peter's mother-in-law gets up and starts serving. And again, that feminist part of me is like, why? And then it hit me that she had this miraculous experience and she went back to serving. Because she saw the greater purpose of what she was doing. She found her lane and she did it. And if we read that in any other way other than the fact that his mother-in-law is servant-minded, wanted to help, wanted to participate, knowing Jewish culture, that there is a reason that it was by evening that the sick and the demon-possessed were going to come there. The practicality of knowing he might be hungry, we all might be hungry. Things are going to get nuts. We should probably be fed for it. Sometimes we miss the practical because we are so focused on the spiritual. Sometimes we miss practical opportunities because we're like, we want to see God do this crazy big thing, which don't get me wrong, like I am down to see some miracles. But man, saying hi to somebody and asking them how they're doing like, I have this, it's called, I call it the Asian mom in me. I always like to bring a ton of lunches because I just never know if someone's going to be hungry and I want to be prepared for it. Because when I was growing up, I was always hungry and no one did it for me. So if now I have the chance, I want to do that. And we miss the practical because we so focus on these grand gestures of God's movement. And there are amazing grand gestures of the presence of God and him moving. But what would happen if the church became less focused on brand and being known for these big things and we were just kind to people? Maybe we, we wouldn't have to show up with our church-branded t-shirts at pride parades to give hugs and ask for forgiveness if we were just kind to the people in our lives who might not believe the same thing as we do. Like, that doesn't get as much play. But holy crap, kindness and practical loving goes a long way. To invite someone to coffee who has nothing in agreement with you. But you have an opportunity to be kind. I wonder what it would be like if the body of Christ, if the church, which is the body of Christ, began to focus less on brand and just focus on loving people practically. Because I believe that if we began to love people practically, people will want to know why. And because we show up and we love well in our everyday life, 
That is where discipleship happens. That is where you are given the space and the platform and the authority to speak into someone's life about how they're living or about how you might live and how they might want to be a part of that. I would be a really crappy example to give marriage advice if I didn't invest in my marriage. But Riley and I are not given the authority to speak into marriages because we're pastors. We are because we practically love each other and we have to work towards it. Because all I've ever known was divorce. So I feel like I have to work extra hard. But purely by loving well and showing up in practical things, the spiritual things will be an outcome. It will be a result. And so we go into that part where it says that evening. That evening, all the demon-possessed people were brought there. They were brought because they probably didn't want to go on their own accord. Somebody loved them enough to bring them to somebody who could deliver them. So who are the people in our lives who might be broken, who might be hurting? And we can bring them to Jesus. And not in that weird way that a lot of Christians are known for. But in that way of asking kindly how they're doing with their mental, like how are you doing if they struggle with mental illness? Asking them, wow, I noticed that something happened in your family. Can I bring a meal? Hey, I, like you shared that your sink was broken. Can we have somebody in our church come and fix it for you? Oh, wow, like you looked really overwhelmed with your children. Surprise, that is a thing. <laughs> Can I just take them for a couple hours? Bringing the broken and the hurting to Jesus is what we should be doing. And that's what those people did for their demon-possessed friends and for their friends who were sick and hurting. And the reason they came that evening was because they were actually at Sabbath. And by law, on Sabbath, you couldn't carry a burden. A burden was considered anything that was heavier than two dried figs. And I thought it was interesting that the term burden is in reference to the broken, to the hurting. And I think how sad it is that we think those people, those people who are hurting, people who need Jesus, people who don't agree with us, people who might rub us the wrong way, people who might have baggage, their burdens. So these people waited until nighttime because as soon as you can see two stars in the sky on Sabbath, Sabbath ends. So these people waited. But Jesus was doing work all day long. Jesus was breaking Sabbath all day long. He was breaking religious code all day long. Because compassion overtook religious practices. Compassion and ability to love well overtook the fact that he was breaking the law. The religious law that he couldn't help anybody. According to also Sabbath law, if your donkey falls in a hole, you can help your donkey out. 
But God forbid you bring someone who is hurting and you carry them to get help. If someone was sick and it was Sabbath, what you could do is make them be okay and just sustain them in that state of sickness. But it would be breaking law if you actually took them to go get healed. And it could feel like Matthew was writing to religious people, the Jewish people who missed the point. But holy crap. How often do we miss the point and we allow our religious practices to stop us from showing compassion? That we make faith legalistic. If I didn't have a personal encounter with Jesus and have been loved well, by certain believers, I would not want to be a Christian. <laughs> I would be like, there is nothing that you can try to sell me about why what you're doing and how you're living is actually something I might want. Because that's not how it works. People will want to know Christ when they actually see Christ in us. People might be attracted to a church and to a gathering because we do cool things. And I'll be perfectly honest. I was I was born again, saved in a highly Pentecostal, highly charismatic environment where there was a lot about brand and lights and shows. And every day as a church planter, I think maybe I should have more shiny things. And then I realized we can't afford that. <laughs> So I guess we'll have to settle in the presence of God. <laughs> but we laugh about that, but that's so true. The way we build community now is let me attract you to this thing. And I'm going to keep attracting you to this thing because that's how you're going to keep coming. But it's not, let me love you every day and maybe you'll never come to my church gathering, but you would know that a Christian family loves you. And not because we said, hey, we're a Christian family that loves you. Because <laughs> like, that's a weird. Evangelism 101, don't say that. But it's because we showed up and we loved well. And that is what Jesus did. Breaking the law, calling out the religious people, and healing because he could. And he did. And then Peter's mother-in-law showed that perfect example that she had this God experience and her first reaction was to go back out and serve. We need to be going back out and serving just like her. We need to be like the centurion who believe and ask for miracles on behalf of people who won't do it or can't do it on their own. And we need to be like the leper who had the boldness to ask even though he probably thought or he knew that it was impossible. It's great to have faith like David the king, wisdom like Solomon the king, zealousness like Paul who wrote the majority of our New Testament. But can we be a house church that believes for impossible things regardless of what we know, like the leper? Can we be like the centurion who will go and be uncomfortable and ask just for the word of God to heal somebody that is not like us and then can we be like the woman who will experience God and then go back out and just serve people 
Because that's what make all these healings unique. And so we're going to end this series on those three healings. 